The story of the photograph is almost a microcosm of the story of inventions themselves. From 1839 and the invention of the earliest cameras, and its refrain as an expensive hobby to today, where almost everybody can take a photo with the phone in their pocket, shows just how far some technologies have come. A story of constant reinvention, photography has fascinated and intrigued us from its very earliest beginnings. Before true photography, there were centuries of ingenious precursors to the photo. The forerunner to the photographic camera was the camera obscura. Camera obscura, Latin for dark room, is a natural phenomenon that occurs when an image of a scene at the other side of a screen or a wall is projected through a small hole in that screen and forms an inverted image, left to right and upside down, on the surface opposite to the opening. This had been known in ancient China and early Islam. In 1568, Daniel Barbaro authorised a treatise that showed that a better image could be produced if you substituted a lens for the small hole. As he said, quote, Close all the shutters and doors until no light enters the camera except through the lens, and opposite hold a sheet of paper, which you move forward and backwards until the scene appears in the sharpest details. There, on the paper, you will see the whole world as it really is, with its distances, its colours and shadows and motions, the clouds, the water twinkling, the birds flying." In the 17th and 18th centuries, a lens was fitted into one end of a two-foot box, and the other end covered with a sheet of frosted or ground glass. The image cast on the ground by the lens could be seen outside the camera. It had been known for millennia that light not only forms images, but changed the nature of substances. Among the substances altered by light are certain salts of silver. The combing element is liberated, leaving a pure metallic silver which, became unpolished, is dark in tone. The light sensitivity of this was first established by German physicist Johann Schultz in 1727. Schultz filled a glass bottle with a mixture of chalk, silver and nitric acid. The bottle in bright sunlight turned a deep purple colour. He then pasted stencils of an opaque paper on the flask and, after exposure to light, the stencil was removed and images of the figures or writing that had been cut out of the paper were visible on the surface of the mixture within the flask. Almost without knowing what he was doing, Schultz had managed to trap the image of the camera. Therefore, photography is the combination of both optical and chemical phenomena. Schultz's method wasn't really practical for widespread use. But as the middle class grew, there was a demand for pictures with wood carvings, and these silhouettes became the most popular. It still wasn't quite photography, but getting there. Thomas Wedgwood, son of the famous Potter, attempted to make permanent photographic prints, and managed to take pictures, but not to make them permanent. 
The Frenchman, Joseph Knipsey, was more successful than Wedgwood. He was an ardent inventor and was initially interested in lithography, a cheap and early method of printing, and, as he had no artistic skill, he was interested in making the images himself. Niepce made the earliest known heliographic engraving in 1822, but he then made a box which he described as, quote, a kind of artificial eye, simply a little box, each six inches square, which will be filled with a tube that can be lengthened in carrying a lenticular glass, close quotes. He used this to take a photo of his birdhouse. He described it as, quote, The background of the picture is black and the object's white, that is, lighter than the background, close quotes. In 1826, Niepce received a letter from a stranger out of the blue. Louis-Jacques Daguerre. Daguerre claimed he was working on something similar, and, after much correspondence, they both worked out they had what the other needed to make a true photograph. They got together and experimented, and Niepce showed off an earlier work, a photograph called View from the Window at La Grasse, which, Niepce called it, is now recognised as the earliest ever photograph taken with a camera. The technique had an exposure of perhaps several days. Exposure meaning the amount of photographic light reaching the camera and whatever you're processing the image onto. Nowadays, many cameras use exposure as an effect. But knowing that a 2D exposure was an important first step, Niepce tried to improve the processing of the image, which is where Daguerre comes in. Niepce and de Gaulle entered into partnership in 1829, which ended four years later when Niepce died. De Gaulle, however, carried on. In 1837, de Gaulle made a modified version of Niepce's invention and thought it was different enough to name it after himself. He called it the de Gaulle-type. The process involved processing the image using silver-plated surfaces sensitised by iodine vapour, developed by mercury vapour, and fixed with hot, saturated salt water. The daguerreotype is a processing method to capture the image of the camera obscura. The method reduced the exposure from days into hours. This method reduced exposure from days and hours into minutes. Daguerre took the earliest known photograph of a person in 1838, while photographing a Parisian street as a man who was having his shoe shined. He was sat for long enough that he was able to be photographed. The first ever person in the photo, therefore, was also photobombed. Daguerre told people, but many were sceptical of the claim that, quote, anyone can take the most detailed views in a minute, close quotes and they disbelieved him that a daguerreotype was a, quote, chemical and physical process which gives nature the ability to reproduce herself, close quotes. On the 7th of January, 1839, de Gaulle showed the invention to the Academy of Sciences and the director of the Academy recommended its purchase by the French government. What struck Europe with this announcement was a type of mania. The French government released de Gaulle's process to the world at large, 
releasing it from any royalty payments as there was now no patent. They made one exception. It was not to apply in England and Wales. Mere days after its announcement, everybody in Paris was clamouring to take photos out of their window. Within five months of the announcement of the process and the daguerreotype camera, the process had spread to Barcelona, Berlin, Edinburgh, Genoa, Hull, Hamburg, Karlsruhe, London, Madrid, Naples, New York, Philadelphia, Kulenenburg, St. Petersburg and Stockholm. The daguerreotype did have advantages. The exposure was still long, meaning that vehicles and pedestrians were still hardly ever in photos. And Daguerre himself did little more after its public release to perfect the method. But in America, with all their technological ingenuity, there was a far more concerted effort at experimentation. In 1851, at the Great Exhibition, Americans won three of the five medals for daguerreotypes. Now we see it a lot, but I can't imagine how disheartening it is to be an inventor and spending years developing something and thinking you're breaking new ground, only for somebody else to come out and release it before you. William Henry Fox Talbot was in just this position when Daguerre's methods were published. Talbot's first camera was a large box intended to record the image of the camera obscura. An hour's exposure on a summer's day left, however, only an impression on the paper. And so Talbot thought this wasn't good enough. So he started to build his own camera, called the Mousetrap, because it vaguely looks like a mousetrap. It was a small box with large lenses, and essentially a camera obscura, as it simply reflected the image onto a piece of paper where a subsequent artist was supposed to trace over the image. Before and after the announcement of the daguerreotype, Talbot tried to improve his work and perfect the chemistry to capture the image of the camera obscura. In photography, a negative is an image where the lightest areas of the photographed subject appear darkest, and the darkest areas appear lightest. This reverse order occurs because extremely light, sensitive chemicals a camera film must use to capture an image quickly enough for ordinary picture takings are darkened rather than bleached by exposure to light and subsequent photographic processing, while a positive is just a normal photo. These terms were named by John Herschel, an astronomer and scientist, who saw Talbot and his slightly different technique to that of Daguerre and quickly adopted it for one reason. If you create a negative photo where all the colours are reversed, it makes it possible to print any number of positives of that photo. Therefore, it made possible for the mass printing and publication of photographs. Back in France, and Louis Blancard Everard was trying out many improvements. In 1850, he invented a new kind of sensitive paper called albumen paper, which was almost instantly taken up by all. After a bit more experimentation, Blancard Everard was able to get a much shorter exposure time, and this innovation allowed for the production of bulk photography. He published a portfolio of prints of architectural and landscape pictures. 
The technique also allowed for the mass illustration of books. The popularity of photography can be seen in the price wars for photographs in the 1850s as daguerreotypists and calotypists, the name given to Henry Fox Talbot's methods, got ever more intense. It was 50 cents for a photo, then 25 cents, then 12.5 cents for a photo. Picture factories and the demand increased production daily from 300 to 500 and then 1,000 photos daily. The routine was to buy a ticket and pose for a photo by the operator who never left the camera, and a production line was set up where several people would set everything up for the photo to be given to the customer 15 minutes later. In 1855, Roger Fenton sailed from England to the Crimea. He was an accredited war photographer, which shows just how quick the spread of the technology was that a mere 16 years after the invention of the photography itself, there was now a war photographer. He was backed by the Agnew brothers of Manchester. Daguerreotypes had been taken during the Mexican-American War, showing officers and men, but nothing during combat. Fenton managed to take photographs under fire. Fenton took a wagon with him. It was fitted out with a dark room, five cameras, 700 glass plates, chemicals, rations and tools, and while in Gibraltar, he bought horses. By April, he was at the front line, and it was a tough experience. He said at the time, quote, when my van door is closed, before the plate is prepared, perspiration is running down my face and dropping like tears. The developing water is so hot, I can hardly bear it in my hands, close quotes. He returned a few months later with 300 negatives, and exhibitions were held in London and Paris, while some of the photos were printed in the illustrated London News. The photos were landscapes and portraits, battlefield scenes and fortifications, soldiers and officers. There weren't any actual scenes of action, as these were beyond the power of the camera of the time, but to a public use to conventional fantasies of romantic battle painters, I mean, just look at the paintings of the Napoleonic War, compared to the pictures of the Crimean War to see the difference. The photographs Fenton took were dull and dreary, and yet they showed people something they hadn't seen before. What war was really like, dull, dirty, and gruelling. When war broke out in America in 1861, it was seen as an opportunity. The American Journal of Photography declared, quote, A battle scene is a fine subject for an artist, painter, historian, or photographer. We hope to see a photograph of the next battle. There will be little danger in the active duties, for the photographer must be beyond the smell of gunpowder, or his chemicals will not work, close quotes. That the photographer would face little danger was wrong. Matthew Brady became famous on the battlefields for turning up halfway through a battle. He would have to crouch for minutes on end in a dark room to go through the delicate manipulations for preparing glass plates while battles raged all around him. Unarmed and knowing the wagon must have looked suspicious, 
All it needed was for a soldier to shoot it up. Brady and his men photographed every phase of the war, and everything they could. Battlefields, ruins, artillery, men, officers, corpses, ships, railroads, and much more. There were 7,000 negatives photographed during the war. The impact photography made on the image of war in the popular consciousness and life in general was perhaps best surmised by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Quote, the very things which an artist would leave out or render imperfectly, the photograph takes infinite care with, and so renders its illusions perfect. What is the picture of a drum without the marks on its head where the beating of the sticks has darkened the parchment? The camera records what is focused upon the ground glass. If we had been there, we would have seen it so. We could have touched it, counted the pebbles, noted the wrinkles, no more, no less. We have been shown again and again, this is pure illusion. Subjects can be misrepresented, distorted, faked. We now know it, and even delight in it occasionally, but the knowledge still cannot shake our implicit faith in the truth of the photographic record." It was in this period of the 1850s and 1860s that a golden age of photography dawned, where photographers crisscrossed the globe and took photos of the Alps, the Pyramids, the American West, and gave mankind its first insight into what life might be like all around the world. But if photography was to advance, it would need to conquer action shots. The last photographic experiment of Fox Talbot in 1851 was in trying to capture an action shot, but soon he was moving on to experiments in photographic reproduction. In 1859, George Washington Wilson photographed people walking on a street in Edinburgh, while Edward Anthony did the same in New York. These photographs caused something of a stir, as they were quickly republished and displayed, while Oliver Wendell Holmes viewed photographs as an important scientific document in the study of how man walks. The ex-governor of California, Leland Stanford, was very proud of his horse collection, and he wanted his friends to see his favourite horse in action, and so E.J. Mybridge was recommended to him. Mybridge was a relatively famous photographer. Having been born in England, he was part of the official expedition to Alaska after the US bought the territory from Russia, and later became a specialist in industrial photography. In 1869, he invented one of the first shutters for a camera, and, after being exonerated for the murder of his wife, he set to work in trying to photograph a moving horse. Mybridge placed 12 cameras with a shutter, working, he claimed, at less than two thousandth the part of a second. Strings were attached to electric switches and stretched across a track, and as the horse rushed past them, it broke the string and the shutter would release, and a series of negatives were thus made as a result. In the end, twelve photographs were took of the horse, and were hardly more than silhouettes, but they showed something the human eye had never known before. When galloping, the horse actually has all four feet 
off the ground together bunched up under the belly. The 12 photographs have since been animated and some have even claimed that these 12 photographs were the precursor to the silent film. The photos were widely published in America and Europe and enabled Mybridge to perfect his equipment. He got shutters controlled by a master switch driven by clockwork, so exposures could be made at any interval, and had three cameras with 13 lenses. Mybridge borrowed horses from Philadelphia Zoo for photographic experiments, and also photographed men and women, nude and clothed, doing all manner of things, including a girl throwing a bucket of water over another girl and a mother spanking her child. In 1871, the British Journal of Photography published a letter describing an emulsion made of gelatin. The gelatin process enabled for the gelatin emulsion to dry on plates and stored for months before use. Originally, this resulted in hand cameras appearing on the market and resulted in a growth of smaller cameras which could now be disguised as paper parcels luggages, watches and books. So surreptitiously were some of these cameras made that they were called detective cameras. The most famous of these cameras invented using the gelatin emulsion process was one manufactured by George Eastman in Rochester, New York in 1888. Introduced in 1888, Eastman named the product Kodak, a word he coined to be short and pronounceable in any language and to make it distinctive. What the gelatin process created was photographic film. The original Kodak was a small box and loaded at the factory with a roll of material sufficient for taking 100 negatives. After the owner had finished with the roll, he sent the camera to the factory and the film was removed and cut into strips of 12 and developed. Prints were developed and returned to the owner with a fresh roll of film. The use of rolls allowed for multiple exposures to be made without the need for heavy glass plates and processing equipment. The Kodak, as Eastman explained, quote, is the separation of the work that any person whomsoever can do in making a photograph. From the work that only an expert can do, we can furnish anybody, man, woman or child, who has sufficient intelligence to point a box straight and press a button, with an instrument which altogether removes the practice of photography, the necessity for exceptional facilities, or in fact any special knowledge of the art." The photographic press marvelled at the Kodak and saw how it might open up the field to more than simply professionals and hobbyists. People could take pictures of friends and family and places they'd visited. They were described as snap shooters. The democratisation of photography is one of the reasons, in one of the episodes, I chose 1888 to be the start of the American century. The effect of the release of the Kodak camera was three. The camera was quickly copied by rival companies in the US, Britain and Europe, though none could quite compete with Kodak's build quality and none had the after-sales infrastructure 
that could develop and print quite as well as Kodak could. The second effect was to change the business model of the photographic industry. The idea that money could be made from the sale of camera and the sale of the film. The idea then changed that the more cameras sold, the more film would need to be bought by customers. And while Kodak was also the first company to produce this type of camera, it was also the first to realise that more profits could be made from this business model. What we would now call vertical integration. The quick profits Kodak made enabled it to monopolise the business and enabled more investment in services to further heighten their monopolistic cycle. The third effect of a Kodak was on the type of photographs now being taken. The Kodak camera helped to introduce informality to photography and an ease in front of the camera, which was something that was bound to happen with now there being more cameras around. People could now be photographed playing around, laughing, smiling. It enabled for photos at home, parks, beaches or wherever else 19th century people went. The revolution in photographs started the development towards ever more familiarity with the camera because it is now ease of use. The easier the camera is to carry around, the more at ease people will be around them as they are more numerous. The popularization of photography led to books, magazines and a sort of second photography mania. However, one thing remained constant through all of this and still remains. Never mind how good the camera is, no matter how easy it is to use, personal skill and talent is the most important thing when taking a photo. Former US President Grover Cleveland once went on a fishing trip with his new Kodak and took photos all day long, but never once turned the key that would wind the film. Many during this time were what George Eastman called true amateurs. Those who don't do it as a full-time job but still acquire enough skills to develop, print and learn how to use it in a near professional manner. It was with the release of the Kodak when photography as art really took off. Peter Henry Emerson can be said as one of the founders of the photography art movement. Emerson claimed that the artist's task was the imitation of the effects of nature upon the eye, referencing the Greek sculptures, Leonardo's Last Supper, and the naturalistic school of art of Constable, Corot, and Barbizon. Emerson said that photography was, quote, superior to etching, woodcutting, and charcoal drawing, close quotes, and was second only to painting in its ability to reproduce exact tonal relationships. Emerson continued his proselytizing of photographic art by making books such as pictures of East Anglian life in luxurious folios and giving special editions to photograph clubs all over Britain. With Emerson campaigning, this idea as photography as art took hold across much of the Western world, with exhibitions fanning out in many cities throughout the 1890s. But of course, most photography was for, and still is for, documentary purposes. 
Whether this is for documenting families or society, photographs were used by the great and the good. The photography by William H. Jackson, who photographed Yellowstone National Park, was instrumental in showing its beauty and natural wonders, which had previously been dismissed as tall tales. The photographic evidence of the slums of London and New York started to show how the other half lives for people who would never actually visit these slums. The most famous of these was the publication by Jacob Rees in his book How the Other Half Lives, Studies Amongst the Tenements of New York in 1890. Photography's biggest revolution, however, was probably in news journalism. The photograph that accompanies the words is often the first thing you look at, and the ability to show a photo in a newspaper often added to the information provided. The first news photographs appeared in 1842, and by the 1850s there were regular pictures of celebrities, railroad wrecks, and collapsed or burned buildings, often with the credit, quote-unquote, from a daguerreotype. By the start of the 20th century, people were expecting photographs of the day's news in the paper. Cameramen were hired on their ability more to get the photo than the actual quality of the photo. But by the turn of the 19th and into the 20th century, it was still far too slow to be able to receive the photo for publication the next day, which hindered the use of photography in daily newspapers. In 1898, William Gamble wrote, quote, Editors and publishers are fully conscious of the public craving for illustrations, but it is difficult to meet it because the methods of producing them are too slow to compete with word pictures, which can be fleshed over the telegraph wires, written out, set in type, and printed off long before an artist has made a sketch to illustrate the same facts. But suppose it were possible to transmit the picture over the wires with the same facility as we now transmit the words, and suppose that the same electric current rendered a transcript of the picture in a form suited for immediately using or converting into a printing surface, what a revolution it would effect in the mind of giving news to the public. This prediction by Gamble was then initiated by N.S. Amstutz of Cleveland, who was working on a technique for producing at a distance an engraving of a photography ready for the printing press. Phototelegraphy, or wired transmission, however, was not fully developed until 1907, when the technique was perfected by Albert Korn, a professor at the University of Munich. The technique depended on the property of selenium to vary its electric conductivity according to the light falling upon it. A positive transparency on a drum was spirally scanned by a light beam focused on a selenium cell. The light varied in brightness according to the density of the area of the photograph scanned, and this current was sent to the distant receiver. The receiver's photographic paper was on a drum, which revolved at the same speed as the transmitter, and was gradually exposed to a light beam, which varied in brightness according to the current received. Phototelegraphy took a huge leap forward with the introduction of the vacuum tube, and in 1925, 
the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, AT&T, opened a commercial service between New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. The ability for the photo to travel as fast as print helped revolutionize news photography. Not all photographs are great material, but the secret to photojournalism is to make the politician behind the desk or diplomats around a table look dramatic. The photojournalist is tasked with taking the photo at the exact right time. When a New York World photojournalist went on a routine assignment to photograph the New York mayor in 1910, he arrived after the other cameraman and hurriedly asked the mayor to hold on for a second pose in a photo. As he posed, an assassin fired two revolver shots around the mayor. The photographer, in the midst of the kerfuffle, photographed the moment the mayor fell into the arms of an aide. When, on May 6, 1937, the Hindenburg was due for a routine visit, the 11th by an airship across the Atlantic, the press was still there, preparing this time not in news photos, but artistic shots of the event. It took only 47 seconds for the Hindenburg to lie on the ground. Every photo of the incident is now world famous. The event in newspapers was shown almost entirely in photos. What else could tell the story better than these photos? During this time, camera technology gradually improved. Cameras were made smaller, so eventually they could become handheld. This meant that camera output was increased and made subjects of photography previously off-limits now within grasp. Furthermore, an increase in technical innovations meant that lenses were producing images with far more detail than before, while cameras began to be fitted with high-speed shutters. In the 1920s especially, the decade of American consumer goods, the most famous camera of them all was the Leica One, which was not the first 35mm camera, but with a growing demand for more spontaneous images, the 35mm format was ideally suited to it. The photos it helped produce would quickly become part of the visual currency of the world, capturing the era in ways that other cameras and other formats might not have. The Leica One was the first camera to popularise the 35mm film format. The camera was one of the first to allow for interchangeable lenses and accessories, which allowed it to be used for many different purposes. The Leica One was perhaps the most popular amongst the photojournalists of the time. And so reliable were they that many kicked on using it until way after subsequent models were brought out. During the 1930s, it began the start of purely photographic magazines. The most famous of these was Life magazine, first launched in November 1936. Life published two types of photos, spot news photography supplied by news agencies and feature stories written and photographed on assignment by staff members. 1935 saw the first appearance of the Canon brand on the world stage. Canon is now a part of the duopoly of cameras with Nikon. The Canon Hanser was preceded by a possible apocryphal story when the founder, Goro Yoshida, moved to Tokyo 
and met a business from Shanghai, who said that Japan made quality aircrafts and battleships. Surely they could make quality cameras too. With little success in the pre-Second World War era, however, the Canon factory managed to escape much of the damage of the war, and so quickly restarted production. The growth in consumer electronics amongst the Japanese helped Canon gain a reputation for cheap yet powerful and reliable cameras. Released in 1947, the Pacemaker Speed Graphic is one of history's most iconic camera, and whenever you see this camera, you know instantly what era you are in. Watch any 1950s movie and you'll see this camera used by the press photography, and it became especially synonymous with New York press photographers. It was earlier speed graphic cameras that had taken the photos of the Hindenburg disaster and the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima. The Hasselblad camera, first produced in 1948 in Sweden, helped it gain, and still largely hold, a reputation for the ultimate professional camera. Perhaps most interestingly is that the Hasselblad camera gained worldwide exposure as it was the principal camera on NASA missions. It took the famous photo of Earthrise on the Apollo 8 mission, described as one of the most important photos ever taken. In the same year, another epochal camera was released, the Polaroid. One of the few inventions ever to be solely invented by one specific person, Edwin Land, his invention of instant photography is one such example. Edwin Land's idea of producing the photo in the camera itself was not new. Henry Fox Talbot had similar ideas, but these ideas never came to fruition. The introduction of dry plates in the 1870s and then celluloid roll film removed the need for immediate processing from a chemical point of view. But there was a commercial need for instant photographs, at fairs for example. Land established the Polaroid Corporation in 1937 to manufacture polarizing sheets, but in 1943 he was inspired to develop instant photography after being on holiday with his daughter and his daughter asking why she could not see the photos he'd taken instantly. It took five years to develop, but on the 26th of November 1948, Land's camera went on sale. The Polaroid Land Model 95 was an upright, oversized folding camera of a design that would have been familiar to many photographers at the time. The camera was developed to take a specific roll of film, which produced a positive photograph at the back, and in the back was a set of rollers and a special type of ink which could be used to produce the photo. In 1956, the 1 millionth camera was sold. The Polaroid did change photography, allowing for instant photographs to be taken and handed out at social events and sold instantly. The fact you didn't need to go to a chemist and have the photo priced by a third party pushed the boundaries of photography. One of the unintended consequences of this was the amount of amateur pornographic material photographed during this time. Colour photography was often seen as the holy grail of photography. As soon as some form of black and white photography had been invented with the daguerreotype, work began on some form of colour photography. 
It wasn't long after the invention of the daguerreotype process that people began to colour in the photos by hand. While in 1850, Levi Hill announced to the press he had succeeded in fixing the colours of nature. And this revelation, of course, led to much interest in how he'd done it. Hill was offered $100,000 for the secret into his technique, but he never responded. The photography professionals became impatient for this knowledge and announced him as a fraud. Eventually, in 1856, he released a treatise on helichromy, which was part instructional and part autobiography. Hill did make some kind of results and had testimony from people like Samuel Morse. Meanwhile, a few daguerreotypists had accidentally made some forms of colour photos. And perhaps Hill, too, had accidentally done the same and been able to recreate it occasionally. After his death, it was said that Hill, quote, always affirmed that he did take pictures in their natural colours, but it was done by an accidental combination of chemicals which he could not for the life of him, again, reproduce." Close quotes. The search for true colour continued. In 1891, Gabriel Lippmann, a professor of physics, perfected his process, which relied upon the phenomenon that a thin film, such as oil upon water, will produce all the colours of the rainbow. The results were startling. An observer wrote, quote, Professor Lippmann, who showed me slides of still-life subjects by projection that were as perfect in colour as in any ordinary glass positive in the rendering of the image in monochrome. Close quotes. However, the problem with the Lippmann process was that it wasn't practical. The solution found was an indirect approach. British physicist James Clerk Maxwell made a dramatic experiment proving that any colour could be made using red, green and blue lights in various portions. In his experiment, there was a projector, and in front of the projector was three lantern slides with a glass cell filled with coloured solution. One red, one blue and one green. Each slide had been made with a negative, and each produced crude yet effective colour photographs. Because Maxwell added red, green and blue light together, this technique is called additive. An equal addition of the three colours produces white, red, green, yellow and blue. This obviously was not going to be the quickest thing to catch on. The need to project these images somewhat reduced its mainstream appeal. A portable apparatus was invented by Frederick Ives of Philadelphia in 1892. But looking through an eyepiece of an instrument, or at a darkened room, was not like looking at a photograph which could be held in the hand. This would take until 1893 for John Jolie of Dublin. Instead of taking three separate pictures through three coloured filtered screens, he took one negative through a darkened screen with microscopic areas of red, green and blue. The screen was the exact size of the photographic plate and was placed in contact with the camera. After the plate had been developed, a transparency was made from it and bound to the colour screen. The black, grey and white areas of the picture allowed more or less light 
to shine through the filters viewed from a normal reading distance, the primary colours so modulated blended to form combinations reproducing the colours of the original scene. From the first commercial camera in 1893 until the Kodak camera, the camera itself and lenses always represented a large expense for the photographer. Cameras were only replaced when necessary and lenses would be reused. Although cameras like the Kodak Brownie was affordable, it was still expensive enough to need to be looked after as it was still a considerable expense. Moving forward, in 1986 the Fuji Quicksnap was released. It was the first disposable camera. By 1991 the disposable camera had sold 50 million with Kodak quickly copying it. The disposable camera as it was originally marketed and then changed to single-use camera following environmental concerns struck a chord with consumers. Throughout the 1990s there were improvements to the single-use camera. But then at the start of the 21st century there was a development that would remove the need for single-use cameras at all. This was the coming of the smartphone. But before the smartphone, photography had long been digitised. The Kodak Nikon DCS100 was the first commercially available digital single lens reflex camera commercially available. This new type of camera, the DSLR, was the end of a process that began in 1975 through the work of Steve Sassoon, who pioneered the digital camera. Kodak was slow to realise its potential, as it would affect its profitable film and paper selling arm. Kodak thought the digital camera would only be popular with professionals rather than consumers. The DCS100 could carry only 156 uncompressed images or 600 JPEG photos. It cost the equivalent of $51,000 or £30,000 in today's money and came with a large plastic suitcase, 200 megabit hard drive disk and cables. Only 987 units were sold from 1991 to 1994. The DCS200 however was slightly more popular and sold 3,240 cameras from 92 to 94. The digital camera enabled images to travel over telephone lines or satellite links and appear in newspapers within minutes, quickening the process of wiring photographs which had been used since the 1920s. The watershed moment for the digital camera was when Ronald Edmonds took a photo using a DCS in 1992 of Bill Clinton accepting the Democratic Party nomination on the 15th of July 1992. Within minutes, the photo was all over the world. Since 2003, digital cameras have outsold their film equivalents. But another technology, combining with the digital camera, would mean that photography would finally be in the hands of almost everybody on Earth. In 1997, Philippe Kahn's daughter Sophie was born. Like many, he would want to share this moment with as many as possible. But instead of getting out his Fuji or Kodak, he got out his mobile phone. Which was a very odd idea back then. On the 11th of June, he took a photo of Sophie with a phone camera, 
an invention of his own. He sent this photo to 2,000 people around the world, and in an instant, the camera phone was born. Cameras on mobile phones became ubiquitous not very long later. The first commercially available smartphone was the Samsung SCH V200. In 2003, more camera phones were sold than cameras, and in 2006, half of mobile phone sales had cameras attached. Now, pretty much every smartphone has a camera on it, and the top-end smartphones even have very good lenses, taking high-quality photos. The release of the iPhone in 2007 essentially made the smartphone and embedded the idea that the camera should be one of the most important facets of this new technology. Perhaps the most advanced smartphone camera of all time was the Nokia Lumia 1020, released in 2013, with such a powerful camera that it was able to compete with many compact cameras and some DSLRs at the time. The Nokia was never going to be able to compete with the iPhone as a product, but its camera pushed the boundaries of cameras during the period. A 41 megapixel camera and some top-of-the-range software allowed it to compete with actual cameras. Once again, the photo was revolutionised by new camera technology. The proliferation of photo-sharing sites following the invention of the smartphone meant that photos are rarely printed now, and sites like Facebook, Instagram and Snapchat have changed just how photography is used. The selfie meant that photos could immediately be shared, and photos were made ever more informal. Any position was liable for a photo, and the selfie has become a whole new genre of photography itself. People are taking more photographs than ever before. In 2000, it was estimated that 85 billion photographs had been taken since the invention of photography. Today, it is estimated that 3.5 trillion photographs have been taken. 250 million photos are uploaded every day on Facebook and 40 million on Instagram. The traditional camera is in decline, while professionals and enthusiastic amateurs still buy dedicated cameras, it is becoming ever more niche. Even some professionals now take photos using their smartphone. The smartphone camera is improving exponentially, and it is likely to be here where we shall see most camera innovations to come. There may be interchangeable smartphone lenses, and future tech like wearables and the Internet of Things will surely allow cameras to be placed in almost anything you want. If the history of the camera suggests anything, it is likely that new developments will come from left field. Not from Nikon or even Apple or Samsung, but somewhere else out of the blue. This could be an unbelievably strong or powerful camera, meaning we could take photographs from Earth into space, for example. It could be tied up in augmented and virtual reality or drone photography. The future will have the answers. The photographs still hold a place in many of our hearts. They can capture a moment better than video. They can be used to show things in one image that might take an hour in film. The photograph of Maradona in his number 10 shirt against Belgium in the 1982 World Cup, where, by himself, he is faced by the entire Belgium team, shows a story that would take video or words to do justice to. Or even from the same tournament, 
his hand of God in the air against England will make a whole generation of England fans wince just by looking at that photo. Of course, pictures tell a lie. The fact that the photo against Belgium, and if you aren't familiar with it, a quick Google search will sort you out, was taken just after a free kick, and therefore an entirely natural incident is almost by the by. What the photo represented was more powerful than what actually happened. What the photo symbolises is often far more important. The photo holds a place in our heart for its symbolism and importance that many other mediums simply cannot compete with. Photos are never taken. The best ones are made by the photographer. Photos can capture a moment in time for all of history. They offer an intimacy that no other medium can. Video looks at its subject and moves on. The photo allows us to look and dream about this one moment in time. What their lives were like. It allows us to stand, look and imagine what this small image forever retained in history was like. We can look at people's expressions and think about their lives just from that one image. Photography is the perfect mix of reality and art. The written word led us to a new epoch. The permanence of information led to the end of prehistory and the start of history. The photograph has allowed us to reach a new, if a little less important, epoch. We can see how people in history now lived, how they looked, and how they survived. We can see how ordinary people lived and how they looked since 1839. We can document what streets and houses look like. We can document our lives like never before. We can see how we looked 10 years ago and laugh in horror. We can document the most important parts of our lives. We can gain a picture and a view of lives gone by and the lives of others. And so for all of these reasons, the photograph is listed at number 71 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time. <laughs>